Standing up in McKinney, this is According to Callus. It is November the 23rd, episode 310, and it's a Wednesday, and that means we're going to jump back in to the Rules for Radicals by none other than Saul Linsky. Even I've decided, rather than do a, a standard report of what's in here or spending time going over the uh, details... I am just going to pick out some excerpts. Now, episode one on this issue came out last week, Wednesday. So this is number two. So I'm scooting forth. uh, And and honestly, (laughs) I don't remember exactly what I all put in last last week's episode. I'm just trying to keep it fresh. and And I find that if I have a little fun while doing this, it kind of carries over into the presentation. So... Some of the chapters are, are of particular interest to me. Um, let me go through those real quick here. Of means and ends, a word about words, the education of an organizer, communication, in the beginning, tactics, the genesis of a tactic proxy, and the way ahead. Now, under the chapter, the tactic proxy, is a description of what is basically happening now. So, I will take some time to elaborate just a little bit of what is going on. So, Mr. Alinsky had indicated that if they could get control of corporate boards, they could control the corporations and what they do. Now, they weren't able to buy enough shares. However, they instant the uh, infested investment banks, investment organizations. And those investment organizations control whole funds of money, particularly retirement funds and such. And they buy and control stocks in other companies. So, you know, Arabella and BlackRock and some of these other things, uh, they come in and they start dictating. This is the whole ESG thing as it's playing out, right? The environmental social and governance package, right? This is the way they are warping reality. You wonder why all the corporations got on board with all the crazy that's happened in the last few years. It's because of this. They're controlled by a few corporate conglomerate investment arms, which are controlled by people that aren't really worried about making money. They're not really worried about what's best for the company. They're worried about outcomes and what kind of outcomes do they desire? It's control. It's manipulation. And he outlines it under the genesis of the tactic proxy. And I'm fairly certain I covered this at some length, but what I want to go back to is tactics. And <laughs> talked about they, you know, they would go and eat a bunch of beans before they would go into meetings. You know what the outcome of that is. And I mean, you can get disgusted, you can get upset and it disrupts it, but there's very little you can do about it for a natural thing, right? But it disrupts things. It causes problems. Now, I wouldn't necessarily think that we're at the point that we have to go into doing that, but it's interesting to see that even he acknowledges that eh, it's not exactly something I'm thrilled about, but it's effective. It works. And honestly, the outcome is what matters. So here we go. Uh, We're going to go jump in. 
under the In the Beginning. In this chapter, he's talking about how to, you know the organization, how things come about. And uh, this is page 123. I'm going to read this little excerpt. It's difficult for people to believe that you really respect their dignity. After all, they know very few people, including their own neighbors, who do. But it is equally difficult for you to surrender that little image of God created in, in our own likeness, which lurks in all of us and tells us that we secretly believe we know what's best for the people. <laughs> That's a scary thought because almost everybody in office feels that way. A successful organizer has learned emotionally as well as intellectually to respect the dignity of the people with which he's working. Thus, an effective organizational experience is much an educational process for the organizer as it is for the people with whom he is working. They must both learn to respect the dig dignity of the individual and they both, both must learn that in the last analysis, this is the basic purpose of organization. For participation is the heartbeat of the democratic way. Now imagine here he's talking about a different form of participation. I mean, we struggle with that to this day. We can't get our own people that say they believe freedom. They say they believe in um, liberty. They say they want good conservatives. They say they believe the Republican Party is going to do that for them. But they're not motivated. They're not effective. They're not participating at a level that they should. Now, we can beat up the people all day long, but what there needs to be an understanding. This is a failure of leadership. It's a failure of the individual candidates, a failure of the leadership to listen and participate and learn from the people that are on their team, the people that want to support them. Now, I've outlined this in basically why I think HD 70 went to the Democrats because the Republican who won the primary really didn't make a good attempt at making peace, really wasn't interested in getting their help after they blew them all off. Now, I agree from the outside looking in, kind of both sides were rude to each other. Both sides were mean. But if you're the candidate, you have to sell yourself. First and foremost, to your front line, the people that are supposed to be on your team and leading the charge. And if you can't bring them on board, that's the problem. You're not selling the right thing, or you're not saying the right thing, or really you're not doing the right thing. Now, you could maybe get a few organizers, throw them in there and get people excited. But when you fail to deliver time and time again, and they look at you as being more of the same or worse yet, worse than what we already have, is it any wonder why they're not excited, why they're not motivated? When we look at how they recreated several of the house districts, it goes in line with this is they realize that they're not up to the task or not interested to being respectful in treating people with dignity. They just expect that we, the people are going to continue to support them and work for them because they have an R after their name, because they feel like they're entitled to win reelection. They feel like we work for them. They seem to forget that even the organizer understands that he's nothing or she is nothing if he doesn't have the group and the group's not effective. But apparently our candidates that are now our elected officials tend to forget that. It's interesting, isn't it? 
this guy here, Saul Alinsky, who was no angel, but he understood what it took to win. He understood how to get things done. And it would be useful if at the very least our people were familiar with this and employed some of these tactics. Again, it's not going to solve everything. And again, some of this is about manipulation, but really what it's about is building a team and using that team to push back against oppression, what they term oppression. We may disagree on what the oppression is, but it was effective. It was a tactic. And here we go here. We learned that when the respect we respect the dignity of the people that they cannot be denied their elementary right to participate fully in the solutions of their own problems. Self-respect only arises out of the people who pay an active role in solving their own crises and who are not helpless, passive, and puppet-like recipients of private or public services. To give people help while denying them a significant part in their action contributes nothing to the development of the individual. In the deepest sense, it is not giving, but taking, taking their dignity. Denial of the opportunity for participation is the denial of human dignity. And he says democracy, and it will not work. So interesting. This guy, 60-some years ago, clearly saw that when you just keep doing stuff for people, whether it's private or government, doesn't matter. You're taking away the ability for people to function. Now, there is a philosophy of those in government that they want a bunch of helpless little cows or sheep, people that can be milked and sheared every two to four years and just do what they're told and not question anything and be good little subservient animals. This guy here is teaching the exact opposite. You have to show people that there is a way to improve their situation. And the way you improve your situation is to be active, be involved, be directly Involved in improving that situation, whatever it may be, push back. And the only way you can do that is stand up on your own two feet and take action. Again, these are things that we've been talking about even before I even knew what was all in this book. These were things that seemed self-evident to me. They seemed to be what I thought was common knowledge, but apparently not. And 60 some years ago, this guy's talking about it. And we have an entire two generations of people that have forgotten all about this. If you can't tell people how to do things, if you can't show them how to do those things and then let them actually do it, you create helpless beings. It goes back to the old idea that you want to teach somebody to fish so they can feed themselves. You can give them the fish, but here's the thing, much like the pigs that they trap by feeding them and feeding them and feeding them, and then all the while they're building that uh, wall around them until they're trapped, it's the same thing. And people fail to see that. And it doesn't matter if they have an R or a D after their name. If they're doing the same things to us, we need to be cognizant of it. We need to be aware of it. We need to push back on it. We need to resist So he talks about an example of having to do with sewing machines in um, Mexico and how the government of Mexico gifted their sewing machines back. But within a short period of time, all the sewing machines were back in the government owned pawn shops. Then he talked about how a United Nations delegate from Liberia analyzing the problems of Liberia noted that his nation had been deprived of the benefits of a previous history of colonialism. The oppressed was astonished and ridiculed this guy 
But the statement showed insight and wisdom. The people of Liberia had never been exploited by a colonial power, never been forced to band together at risk of great personal sacrifice to revolt for freedom. They had been given freedom upon the establishment of their nation. Even freedom as a gift is deficient in dignity, hence the political sterility of Liberia. Interesting, isn't it? Finley Peter Dunn, as Mr. Dooley put it, don't ask for rights, take them. I'm just going to Americanize this. And don't let anyone get give them to you. A right that is handed to you for nothing has something the matter with it. It's more than likely it's only wrong turned inside out. Yet we have given people something for nothing for so long that they no longer respect themselves. And we wonder why we're in the situation that we're in. That's what we're dealing with. We've got multiple generations that have gone through the government schools and been programmed to expect to be given certain things and they can't function if they're not given things. And then we as older people, yeah, that's me now, I'm the middle-aged man, we look back and we're like, "Um, you do understand if you'll just work for things, you can get those same sort of things. In fact, you might be in a better situation, but they don't know. They don't understand it. And they act offended if you demand them that because they haven't actually seen it play out because there's been two generations of separation. We need to lead by example. We need to show them how it is done and we're not doing a good job of it. So again, that comes back on us. So that comes down is how do you overcome this? How do you fix this? Now, Olinsky's talking about as an organizer, you can bring this around. It's an educational mechanism. You show and you demonstrate how this can be done and you teach people how to do that for themselves. And each issue leads to enlarging an overlapping area of interest. And he says, competent organizers should be sensitive to these opportunities. Without this learning process, the building of an organization becomes simply the substitution of one power group for another. So it seems interesting to me. It, it It's interesting in the sense that People are happy to turn over a certain segment of their control in their life if they believe the person they're turning it over to, quote unquote, has the best interests of their interests in mind, that they're on the same page. But the reality is that never works out well long term. Look what they've done to our children. Look what's going on to people's grandchildren. I mean, the things that are going on in the school districts right now, I would imagine even Saul Linsky would be embarrassed by it. He, he would not go along with this stuff. But again, this is what we're dealing with. So I guess I, there's a couple more excerpts out of this. I'm going to just catch for tonight. And uh, I'm going to wrap up the, my final thoughts and some takeaways. I think next week, Wednesday, The idea being that if we're not willing to learn from our adversaries, if we're not willing to take what they're doing and turn it to our good, if you will, what good is it? What are we learning? Okay. Um, Let's see here. I should have put some highlights in this, but I left this book as clean as I could so I could give to somebody else. All right. talks about self-interest and this is under the word about words i don't think i touched base on this so we're gonna we're gonna delve into this and there's some interesting takeaways self-interest like power wears a black shroud of negativism and suspicion 
To many, the synonym for self-interest is selfishness. The word associated with a repugnant conglomeration of vices such as narrowness, self-seeking, self-centeredness, and everything that is the opposite to the virtues of altruism and selflessness. This common definition is contrary, of course, to our everyday experiences, as well as the observations of all great students of politics and life. The myth of altruism as a motivating factor in our behavior could arise and survive only in a society bundled in the sterile gauze of New England Puritanism and Protestant morality and tied together with the ribbons of Madison Avenue public relations. It is one of the classic American fairy tales. So I got to say, that is a very powerful paragraph. And what's interesting is it's almost congruent with something that Ayn Rand had said. People that talk about altruism are usually lying. And the only reason they can get away of it with this is because people believe it's a good thing. And the way they believe it is because of the New England Puritanism that he's talking about, the Protestant morality, right? There's this certain morality that we expect, and that used to be sold on Madison Avenue. It's not anymore. In fact, immorality is openly sold on Madison Avenue now. But at this time that he's doing this, which would be the mid to late 60s, which is about the same time, well, I shouldn't say it's shortly after, if you will, when Rand's uh, novel, Atlas Shrugged, came out, and they were both kind of destroying, from two different angles, the myth of altruism. There is a bad actor involved in this. It's a, it's a false sale. They believe that you can do this. Now, under the guise of Christianity and in the perfect world, this is the application of greater man or greater love has no man than he that would give a life for his friend. But we're not in that situation. And the Christian morality, while it would be ideal, isn't plausible or possible in a pluralistic society and those that don't subscribe to the same beliefs, unless you want to continue to sacrifice yourself for no gain. You have to provide and take care of your family. You have to look out for your community. You can't do that if you're not getting paid for what you do. That's the underlying issue. That is my takeaway. How, what does that mean to you? That means that you cannot and you should not be pushed around and sold this false bill of goods, that you should always be giving away stuff. You should always be sacrificing yourself. Now, I give sacrificially of my time and my efforts to my family and to my close friends, and on occasion to an issue or a movement that I care about or agree with strongly. And to me that I'm doing it because I think it's best for myself, my family, my community, or in this case, Texas. But to continuously sell this to a group of people that know no benefit from it and will never see said benefit and quite frankly are being sold this false bill of goods. So he then goes further on about a page or two later and says, Machiavelli makes a mortal mistake when he rules out the moral factors of politics and holds purely to self-interest as he defines it. This mistake can only be accounted for on the basis that Machiavelli's experience as an active politician was not too great, for otherwise he would have not overlooked the obvious fluidity of every man's self-interest. In other words, just because it's in your self-interest today doesn't mean that it will be in your self-interest tomorrow, or you may choose to change what you think is better for you. So 
the overall case of this larger dimension than that of self-interest narrowly defined, it must be a large enough to include and provide for the shifting dimensions of self-interest. You may appeal to one self-interest to get me into the battlefront to fight, but once I am there, my prime self-interest becomes to stay alive. And if we are victorious, my self-interest may, and usually does, dictate entirely unexpected goals rather than those I had before the war. So this is interesting now. For example, the United States in World War II fervently allied with Russia against Germany and Japan and Italy, and shortly after the victory, fervently allied with its former enemies, Germany, Japan, and Italy, against its former ally, the USSR. These dramatic shifts in self-interest can be rationalized only under huge limitless umbrella of general moral principles such as liberty, justice, freedom, Ah, law higher than man-made law, and so on. Morality, so-called, becomes a continuing as the shelf interests shift. So in other words, they're going to sell you whatever they need to sell you in order to get you to buy in. Where have we seen this before? This is still going on today. Cue the invasion of Iraq 1, the invasion of Iraq 2. Cue going into Afghanistan. Getting involved in Ukraine. Getting involved in... Formosa, a.k.a. Taiwan. Why? Why are we doing this? Why are we sacrificing ourselves? I have no compunction if you individually want to go there and help. I have no issue if we want to sell them arms so they can protect themselves. But I see no vast benefit by sending the next generation of young men to go die on foreign soil for a foreign country when we can't even protect our own. And if you don't believe we can't protect our own, you need not look any further than our southern border that we continuously ignore. So we do that at our own peril. We cannot continue to go along with this and pretend that it's in our self-interests. And that's the takeaway today. If you haven't picked up this book, you should. Rules for Radicals, the Pragmatic, or A Pragmatic Primer for Realistic Radicals, Saul Linsky. It's cheap. It's readily available. Better to understand your enemies, (laughs) real or imagined. And you can see a lot of this stuff play out even today. The man was prescient, quite smart, and very, very effective in building up the next generation of what I'll call troublemakers. But if we take their methods, we take away the things that are usable And twist them and put them to our purposes. I suggest to you we would be able to capably fight back and hold our own. And with that, I will leave you. Go enjoy your Thanksgiving. I will see you on the other side.